Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. There's no doubt about it. Loretta Lynn was an icon. From her first release in 1960 to her final album in 2021, she spoke to generations of fans, particularly women, about the hardships, happiness, joy, and pain that all come together to make up this thing we call life. Although she was born in Butcher's Hollow, Kentucky, her long career was deeply rooted right here in Nashville. In fact, it was here that her autobiographical Oscar-winning film, Coal Miner's Daughter, first debuted in 1980. Later this hour, we'll learn more about Loretta Lynn, who she was and what she's left behind. But first, there's a heated mayoral race playing out in the small town of Mason, Tennessee. This election comes at a pretty important time for the majority black town about three hours west of us. The state attempted to take control of Mason's finances earlier this year, something Mason's local leaders called into question, especially given the timing as construction had just begun on the neighboring Ford Motor Plant. Tennessee Lookout reporter Anita Wadwadi has been closely following the story over the past several months, and she joins us now. Anita, thanks for being here. Welcome back to This is Nashville. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. Really a pleasure to have you. So, you know, before we get into this mayoral race, which sounds very, very wild, let's just say, let's go back a few months. For any listeners who might be out of the loop, why did the state attempt to take over this town's finances? So... Mason, as you mentioned, it's it's a tiny majority black town about 45 minutes east of Memphis. And Mason, over a, about a decade or so, had accrued an enormous amount of debt. It was more than half a million dollars in the hole. And the comptroller in the spring, um, after kind of going back and forth with Mason's elected leaders, uh, issued this public ultimatum. His perspective was that Mason's finances were in such terrible shape that the, the best thing for Mason to do was to simply uh, cease to exist as mm. a city and be subsumed under the leadership of Tipton County. Now, Mason's local leaders pushed back against this. Where did that land? Well, it, it, they did push back. And I guess the, the key thing I did not add to that explanation is that Mason until 2016 was largely uh, a white-led community. The majority of its leaders, its elected leaders, were white. That changed after allegations of fraud and mismanagement, which gave rise to this enormous debt, emerged. And the current leadership is majority Black. So when the Comptroller issued this ultimatum. Mason's elected leaders um, accused him then and continue to accuse him of acting in a racist manner, mm. that they uh, said that his effort to take over the city was racially motivated. 
Now, I understand Mason's leaders are also calling the timing into question. Why? Right. Well, as you mentioned, um, Ford Motor Company has just broken ground on its new electric vehicle plant. It's a $5.6 billion plant that's going up less than five miles away from Mason. Um, And Mason's leadership are questioning the timing just as the entire region uh, around that plant is expected to experience a surge in investment and development. Workers will be moving there, restaurants will be coming there. Um, and their their question, their questioning of the controller is, you know, why, if you've known about our financial struggles since 2016 and before when the town was led by white leaders, why are you just now coming in and telling us to give up our charter just as we have the opportunity to take advantage of all this investment and get back on our feet? Mm-hmm. And so that makes it pretty clear that this is a pretty important election for the town. Let's talk about the mayoral candidates. First, Vice Mayor Virginia Rivers is running. She's been vital in the pushback against the state, and she joined us on the show back in March to talk all about it. What is her platform? She, like um, each of the candidates, um, are focused on two things. One is kind of finally pulling Mason out of the financial hole that it's in, in its ongoing relationship with the comptroller. So Mason never actually ceded its charter, but it was subsumed under the financial oversight of the comptroller, which means the comptroller's office reviews its books on a regular basis. They're in close contact with Mason. At one point, they had um, veto power over any expenditure of $100 or more in the city. That's um, That's since changed, but they still do have a level of financial oversight over the town of Mason. And so Ms. Rivers um, is focused on steering Mason through to the end of that financial oversight, as well as uh, looking to the future about how Mason might prosper and grow. One of the things she's very interested in, and she says she's talked with representatives from Ford, is about maybe establishing a worker training center within the town limits to help train not only people in Mason and the young people in Mason, but in the surrounding area to be able to work at Ford. Now, you reported that her campaign has been targeted with vandalism. What happened there? Well, um, so a campaign in a town like Mason doesn't really require a big campaign chest. And in fact, none of the candidates have reported um, any uh, fundraising. I I think the, the filing deadline is today, the latest filing deadline. But really, the campaigning is door-to-door and campaign signs. That is what people do. There's no debates. There's no polling. There's no TV or radio appearances. And so the campaign signs are kind of a big deal. Mm -hmm. Um, They're a way for candidates to get the attention of the people in their community. So 
Um, Ms. Rivers, the vice mayor, is, uh, a couple of her signs were vandalized. One was sliced kind of across the top and one was removed. Um, she says she is the only candidate who's been targeted by that kind of vandalism. And she's she's pretty upset by it. Now, there's Thomas Burrell, longtime leader of the Black Farmers Association. There is a dispute about whether he's eligible, right? Yeah, and this dispute is uh, kind of a rabbit hole, but the the broad outlines of the dispute is um, Mr. Burrell was not living in Mason um, before May. He is a longtime Tipton County farmer, and he has 400 acres right outside Mason's town limits. But his parents are from Mason. His grandparents are from Mason. He watched closely this dispute with the comptroller. And in May, he decided to establish residency by uh, renting some property from a friend, um, renting an RV, which he's parked on a front lawn, and establishing what Mason requires, which is six months of residence before you are eligible to uh, run in an election or vote in Mason's elections. Now, his actual residency is has been called into question. Um, there are all kinds of allegations about when did he turn on the water and how often has he traveled out of town? But the status of that right now is he was disqualified by the Tipton County Election Board for running in the mayor's race. He filed suit in federal court to be reinstated. He lost that suit. And he currently has an appeal pending before the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. And uh, as you said, he's a longtime leader of the Black Farmers Association, and he sees his disqualification in in historic uh, Black exclusion from the election process terms. Mm. Then there's Eddie Naiman, an alderman and longtime businessman in Mason. What's his platform about? So Mr. Naiman, um, has been in Mason for 18 years. He's been on the board of uh, aldermen. He has also served as vice mayor in the past. He used to run a couple of convenience stores and a gas station, uh, and those have since shut down. And his perspective, uh, because he has also had sort of a dispute over reestablishing his business with the town of Mason is that he wants to make the town much more business friendly. He wants to make it easier to get a business license. He thinks that's a very uh, vital next step if Mason is going to attract the businesses that want to uh, move to the area because of the Ford development. And we have the current mayor, Emmett Gooden, who is running for re-election. He was elected in 2018 by a margin of 45 votes. That's that's really close. You know, how is he how's he approaching his campaign this time around? Um, Mayor Gooden is not as out front as someone like 
the vice mayor who's been on national TV and really outspoken, he says he's been really hard at work behind the scenes to get his town back on financial track. Um, he hopes to continue that work. He's concerned that uh, all the work that he's put into the really kind of dull work of balancing the books um, and uh, talking with CPAs may be jeopardized if there is a change in leadership. And he, like everyone else, is looking to the future. Um, he he would like to see Mason really transform. He, I believe what he called it, his hopes were for a, a mini Memphis. Hmm. He would like to see it revitalized into sort of a, a bustling and business diverse city. I mean, this town is only two square miles with a population of less than 1200 people. You combine, you combine that with an election in which people are hurling accusations of dirty play against each other. I imagine that things are probably very tense down there right now. Were you able to talk with any residents about what they, how they are weighing this as they consider the candidates? I have talked with residents who would were not willing to have their name used in any story, um, and I've I've encountered this before. Um, Obviously, nobody has to talk to a reporter uh, on the record, but I've found people to be very reticent. Um, and I, I completely understand why, you know, they don't know me. I'm not from Mason. Um, but when I've talked with people off the record, there's either complete um, disinterest because people are just going about their days. You know, they've got mm -hmm. jobs. Um or there's, you know, this kind of strange subtext of like, oh, there's just a lot more going on here than you could possibly understand. Um, as I said before, there's no polling. There's no real way to know who's, a, who's the favorite, who's going to get the most votes. As you said, the last mayoral election, the margin uh, for the, for Mayor Gooden was 45 votes. There were about 300 votes in total cast. So it's really hard to get to really take the temperature of this um, this race in Mason right now. Mm -hmm. So what are you keeping your eye on as we draw closer to Election Day? Well, I uh, am going to be checking on the legal filings to see if Thomas Burrell's um, appeal to the Sixth Circuit is taken up and whether that adds him back or keeps him off the ballot and looking at the outcome of the race. But in general, I think that whole area in West Tennessee um, surrounding this new Ford plant is just going to be undergoing a, a pretty rapid um, economic change. People are building subdivisions, taking out business licenses, property transfer rates are increasing, prices are shooting sky high on real estate. So all of those things um, I think are really interesting for reporters to um, keep an eye out for. Anita Wadwani is a senior reporter at the Tennessee Lookout. We got a link to her latest story on the mayoral race in Mason, Tennessee, in today's episode post. Check it out at thisisnashville.org. Anita, thanks for being with us, and thank you for your reporting. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Khalil. 
We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about the legendary country musician Loretta Lynn and her 60-year career. What did Loretta Lynn mean to you? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. Country musician Loretta Lynn passed away at age 90 in her ranch in Hurricane Mills, Tennessee last week. The legendary singer-writer embodied rebelliousness and strength while never abandoning her down-home sensibilities. She lived the songs she wrote, and she wrote candidly about the domestic realities of women. Here with me to take a deep look into the life and legacy of Loretta Lynn are Julie Height, editorial director for our sister station WNXP, and Nashville-based historian Amanda Marie Martinez, who writes about race and the country music industry. Thanks to you both for joining us, and welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks for having us. Yeah, happy to be here. This is great. So, you know, Loretta Lynn, she's not only been like this musical icon, but a pop culture figure for more than half a century and people, people of a certain age, I definitely do, will remember her Crisco commercials. You know, Amanda, what have you learned about who she really was? Well, what I think is so fascinating about her is I don't necessarily think she was faking who she was, right? In those Crisco commercials, I mean, she was being true to her upbringing, right? Um, but I think what was unique about her is that she recognized the value of kind of leaning into that backstory, as a country artist. So when you look at some of her contemporaries um, at the height of her career in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, some contemporaries like a Jeannie C. Riley or a Bobby Gentry were um, kind of uh, sold as sex symbols in uh, miniskirts and hot pants. And Loretta Lynn was over there um, with her Crisco cooking and her long kind of prairie dresses, really leaning into that kind of country uh, heritage. Now, Julie, what was your true introduction to Loretta Lynn? I think even though, you know, there's a difference between a pop culture figure being so present in the firmament, you know, and in commercials, like you pointed out, and then actually really zeroing in and engaging with their work. So I feel like it was when uh, it was when Loretta Lynn made that album with Jack White, Van Leer Rose, about two decades ago. That's what took me to the place of zeroing in, you know, diving into her work and really, really ingesting it. You know, that was kind of a pivotal moment. Um, Before that, there'd been examples of, you know, other country icons like Johnny Cash, you know, making all those American recordings that sort of rebooted, reframed, recontextualized his his image for a younger crowd and a rock-loving crowd. And so Loretta Lynn had her own version of that, making that album with Jack White, who brought in members of the Greenhorns. And, you know, they kind of brought in a garage rock element and combined it with her hard country and her stories of, I mean, there's so many stories on that album that are also from her early, early days in Butcher Holler, Kentucky. I mean, in, um, you know, 
coal mining, her 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 dad, the hardworking coal miner and the the poverty and resourcefulness that she lived with. So they combined they kind of stripped away, you know, the polish of the Nashville sound that she'd had on other recordings and just put the real hard country sound with garage rock and put her stories front and center. And I believe I feel safe in saying that's probably the first Loretta Lynn album that got a pitchfork review. But, you know, so it uh, yeah, it's the kind of thing that passed muster for um, people who consider themselves indie rock fans and were looking for authenticity. But I mean, to me, it was it was a reason to to kind of get into what else what else is there like what else because that was late in her career and so much happened before then okay so that album is called van leo rose and let's listen to one of the tracks now called portland oregon Now, Julie, you mentioned a little bit about the impact of what this album had, but talk to me a little bit. Like, did people like yourself, did you, did other folks start going through her discography and checking out some of her earlier works? Well, I think that it, you know, it introduced uh, Loretta Lynn, that album Van Leer Rose, to, you know, to a younger audience because she'd had, I mean, multiple generations of, of listeners, really, and then it kind of, you know, made her seem accessibly authentic to people who were, you know, considered themselves um, rock fans or hipsters or, or whatever. It was right at that intersection of, you know, the the realness that she embodied in her storytelling and her image, how she spoke, how she moved through the world. That was sort of put on put on display. Um, so, you know, I think people probably took that in a lot of different directions with their with their listenership. But I think it was a deliberate choice to um, not necessarily in, in that song that we just heard, Portland, Oregon, but the, the title track, Van Lee rose and the recitation about little red shoes on that album mm. she went back to telling to telling those early stories about um, making do with nothing so that that kind of I mean it, it was an introduction and a reminder you know and I think it was it was interesting that she was up for taking on a project like that now now we're talking about her image Loretta Lynn is famous for her storytelling in song. That's notable in her best-known song, Coal Miner's Daughter, which paints a pretty frank picture of her childhood growing up in Butcher's Hollow in Kentucky. The autobiographical book of that same title was later turned into an Oscar-winning film. So, you know, what's so important about how she told the story of her life, Amanda? Well, again, I think she is, you know, um, 
really convincing listeners of her kind of authenticity as the kind of quintessential um, country woman through not just the song, but the book of the same name and and the film. Um, so in that context, um, you know, I, I think it gave listeners a song that they could identify with um, who had similar kind of rural or maybe um, blue collar up, up raisings. Let's listen to a little bit of Coal Miner's Daughter right now. What advantage did her humble origins give her when it came to speaking her mind and talking about topics not normally discussed in country music? Sure, yeah. Um, well, Loretta Lynn, what I've often thought about is within this context of, you know, when she was kind of at the peak of her career in the late 60s, early 70s, she was singing about a lot of issues facing women, um, and particularly housewives. I think that a lot of... Uh, the songs about women in country music during this this time period were really about housewives and, and what they could kind of identify with. So things like um, a cheating husband or, um, you know, in ones on the way, you know, issues with, with child care and not having a partner uh, kind of help you with that. Um, and she was far from the only woman in country music during that period to sing those songs, right? So... Um, Tammy Wynette was was singing uh, similar issues. Uh, Dolly Parton was singing about the double standards that women face at the time. Um, it was very, very common. You know, of course, Jeannie C. Riley's uh, career-defining hit, Harper Valley PTA, also about issues facing women. Um, but again, I think what separated Loretta Lynn from the others was that she was uh, so... Uh, forthright about her country roots, that she was doing this as the kind of um, absolute country girl. It made it all the more convincing. Now, in her book, Coal Miner's Daughter, she makes it plain that she doesn't identify with women's liberation. Can you help us, you know, understand her complicated relationship with feminism? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I actually don't see it as so complicated. I think that when the news came out in the last, you know, five, six years um, about her being a Trump supporter, I don't really see that as kind of an outlier. 
um, if you look at her kind of history, right? I mean, she supported uh, someone like George Wallace, the infamous segregationist. Um, and while her songs are absolutely um, sung in a very kind of frank, uh, forthright manner, um, they also kind of don't envision a woman's role outside of, you know, being a wife and a mother. Um, so while there is a lot of power in her vocalizing um, these issues facing women, these double standards, um, I think that we should take her at her word when she said things like, I'm not a fan of women's liberation. Julie, give us your reflections. I think that, you know, that she was such a savvy and vivid storyteller and, and communicator that when she was when she was talking about um, her origins, her humble origins, emphasizing um, how hard it was, but how much you know, how how resourceful she was and her parents were and she and and her husband Doolittle were in, you know, in getting her career started and all of the driving around to different radio stations and just, you know, selling records out of the back of her car. And then on from there to the many, many ways that she depicted uh, domestic strife. I mean, so much of that storytelling, it was, um, as as Amanda put it in, in a great piece, she just published at at NPR Music. It was sort of the epitome and the embodiment of um, country storytelling and, and country concerns. It was so it was so vital and so alive, and you know it was so so clever and and knowing to me too. So I think that when she you know when she would write and sing a song like "Don't Come Home a Drinking with Lovin' on Your Mind" mm-hmm. and you know, draw a very clear boundary for uh, for a partner coming in a little sloshed and trying to, you know, to force themselves on uh, on on the woman at home. I mean, she did that in a way that was it was clear and it was also really clever. I mean, that was present in her in her writing and in her delivery, the way that she sang. And I think that those things that were so, you know, that that she knew the power of storytelling, she knew the power of conveying that she'd not gotten above her raising and and, you know, performing in a way that that made it clear she saw herself as that she was on the same level as the people who loved her music. She didn't hold herself above above them. Those are all things that played into how her music was received and how she could um, how she could tell stories over and over again that were advocating yeah. for, you know, like for women's self-determination yeah. in the domestic sphere. Those are the things that made people love it when she did that. Man, there was one one lyric that she has in that song, Don't Come a Drinking with Love It on Your Mind. She says, just stay out there on the town and see what you can find, because if you want that kind of love, well, you don't need none of mine. That that stood out to me that's, as I went into a deep yes, dive. Yes, that's of her real. Music. That's, that's so, clever. That's, that's so salty. Real. That that connected with people, let's, made people feel seen and heard. Let's listen to one more song. It's called "The Pill," released in 1975. You wind me and dine me when I was your girl. Promise if I. 
could show me the world But all I've seen of this old world Is a bed and a doctor bill I'm tearing down your brooder house Cause now I've got the pill All these years I've stayed at home While you had all your fun And every year that's gone by Another baby's come There's gonna be some changes made Right here on Nursery Hill You set this chicken your last time Cause now I've got the pill This old maternity dress I've got Amanda, what did this song mean when it came out in 1975? Well, it was really a fascinating moment. So it came out in, ni- in early 1975. Um, what's interesting is that uh, Lynn, along with a few others, had written the song three years prior in 1972. Um, also, 1972 was when the Supreme, a Supreme Court case uh, fully legalized abortion. So it's clear that she's thinking about these issues and, and re- uh, documenting it in her songwriting. Um but just in general, the early 70s was a huge period for um, feminism and, and certain movements. So, um, of course, 1973 uh, is Roe versus Wade um, that gets passed uh, legalizing abortion. And then 1975 uh, was declared by uh, the United Nations as International Women's Year. Um, so it's really fascinating to think about how issues facing women um, were at front of mind for a, a lot of Americans at the time, including, of course, Loretta Lynn. Now, of course, this uh, song, uh, regardless of the fact that um, all of these issues facing women were kind of at front of mind, of course, it was obviously still quite controversial uh, to talk about these things in the context of uh, country music. That is country music historian Amanda Marie Martinez. She was joined by WNXP editorial director Julie Height. I want to thanks to you, give thanks to you both for being here. Really appreciate this conversation. Thanks for having us. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll invite two Nashville-based musicians into the conversation about how Loretta Lynn's music influenced them. What does Loretta Lynn and her music mean to you? Tweet us your stories at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. We've been talking this hour about the legacy of Loretta Lynn, who died last week at age 90. Before the break, we were reflecting on who she was and her complicated relationship with feminism. Her storied career spanned 60 years, and there's no doubt about it, Loretta Lynn pushed boundaries. She was the first woman in country music to sing about women's issues, something that made a mark on the country music industry and has inspired generations of musicians to come. My next guests are two such musicians, singer-songwriter Kelsey Walden and country music artist Angelina Presley. Welcome to This Is Nashville. Thanks to you both for being here. Thanks for having me. Glad to do it. Thanks. So like Loretta Thanks for- Thank you for being here. Like Loretta Lynn, I understand you both hail from Kentucky. We do. That's awesome. Yes, we do. I think we're 
the op- we cover the, the whole span end, yeah. because yeah. I'm from the east and she's from the west, so we got it all. We got the whole state covered. The <laughs> bluegrass right. state is representing here on this is Nashville. You know, but Angelina, you have another connection in common, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm a coal miner's daughter too. Uh, yeah, I grew up about 20 miles from Butcher Holler, so I'm very close. You know, grew, knew who Loretta was as far back as I had memories. You know, me and my mom used to do dishes to her records in the kitchen. When I was growing up, um, I used to skip school in high school and go to Butcher Holler and write in my journal. And yeah, she, she, Loretta, like she's part of the reason I was able to visualize the life that I've made for myself. So what did that mean to you? Here you are listening to her at night with your mom. You're mm-hmm. cutting class in high school I to was. go there and to because maybe feel the essence while you write. Mm-hmm. What did that mean to you? It meant everything. You know, uh the first time I ever met Loretta, we were pushed together for a photo on the red carpet. I think it was at the Americana Awards. And it was kind of awkward and a little awkward silence. And then she looked at me and she goes, well, there wasn't nothing to do in eastern Kentucky except dig coal or sing songs about it. And I guess we're the ones that got lucky enough to sing songs about it. <laughs> and like out holding back tears. But it, exactly what she said to me. You know, I'm from such a tiny town and there wasn't there weren't a lot of options. Um, And I always had this knowing that I was supposed to tell the stories and she did it first. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I would have had the courage or the the know how to do it if she hadn't blazed that trail for me. Mm. Kelsey, what was your introduction to Loretta Lynn? Yeah, um, I as well heard Loretta growing up. Pretty much my whole life, my granny had um, this eight track that she had uh, in her sunroom um, in her house. And she had the Conway and Loretta Feelings eight track. And she would play Mm. that all the time. And also we had this kind of like jukebox country station called Willie 102 in Ballard County. And that was kind of our classic country station. And um, I think that was the first time I... I uh, heard Loretta and obviously was very um, struck by it, you know. Now, you credit Lynn for helping you to find your own voice. Tell me, what what do you mean by that? Well, I think I just saw so much of myself in her, you know. Um, and I didn't grow up a coal miner's daughter, but I think she spoke to, you know, I mean, I still, you know, grew up farmer's daughter. I mean, um, you know, in the river bottoms, basically in the high river bottoms, you know, in flood country, uh, you know, and people in my County too, still like, you know, a lot of my people I went to school with and stuff, you know, a lot of people didn't go to college and, you know, there's like not a lot of options still, you know, it's like, I don't know. I just, I think, I think seeing her do it, it was like, I can do it, you know? Um, I saw so much of myself in her, and I know I'm not the only one, um, but uh, I think she also helped push me to find, like, my unique voice in that way, too, you know? Yeah. Um, let's for listen, sure. I mean, I... Let's listen, oh, to, go ahead. let's listen to one of your early releases to hear that inspiration that she gave you. This is False King. You can't ever hang on too long 
All right, so tell me, as you were getting started, what did you learn from Loretta and her music? Um, I think to just go there um, and also just like embrace being myself. Um, yeah, I think just embracing like every part of, of who I was. I, I mean, I feel like when I heard Van Lear Rose when I was 16, that album came out when I was 16 and that one in particular, like just, I don't know. I was like, okay, like being country is cool. And being from Kentucky is even cooler. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Amen, you know, I, yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know. I just, you know, because it's like, yeah, I mean, I'm sure Angelina like relates to this too. It's just like, and I heard it my whole life growing up, but I feel like, you know, there's a lot of things in this world. It's like people, I don't know. It's like maybe try to make you feel like you're not cool because you're, you're from a certain place or, you know, it's like too country or too this or that. And like Loretta, made me feel like that was okay, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Angelina, you've said that Loretta Lynn has pretty much been your number one inspiration and had a big impact on your songwriting style. Let's hear mm-hmm. one of those songs now. This is Bless My Heart. Because you cut down anything you don't understand Anybody who interferes with your plans of This is awesome. Okay, you know, one of the hallmarks of Loretta Lynn was her wit. Yeah. And obviously, I hear it in your music as well. What what role does humor play in your songwriting, it's especially when you're talking about heavier subjects yeah. and strong feelings? Well, that's something I learned. You know, I learned it from Loretta and Dolly and John Prine. Uh, you can just get away with more when you're funny about it and you, you present it in, in a lot clever way you know this song in particular it's the deeper meaning it's about empathy Mm -hmm. as opposed to pity and sympathy you know when you're going through a hard time you don't want somebody to look down on you and say oh bless your heart you want somebody to say i'm with you Mm -hmm. in this Mm -hmm. um so and it's so much easier to kind of slip in a message like that when you're appealing to uh, someone's sense of humor You know, when you were growing up, did you see the impact of her songs on the community she was talking about? Do I know? Did you see the impact of her songs on the community? Loretta's? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know a a single soul in my hometown who doesn't, you know, just reveal Loretta is it. Um, And a song like Coal Miner's Daughter, you know, in country music, you're told when the business of, you know, you want to be universal, you need to be relatable and people, you know, you need to appeal to a large audience. Well, you can't get more specific and more personal than a song called Coal Miner's Daughter. And that song was a number one hit, took over the world, a movie was made about it. 
And that's another thing that Loretta taught me was you can, and like what Kelsey was saying, you can be as true to yourself as you can possibly be. And there is an audience for that, Mm. you know? So Mm -hmm. yeah, she definitely had an impact on uh, the working class coal mining people that uh, from where I'm from. You know, she, Loretta Lynn was an early trailblazer for women in country music, but she wasn't alone. You know, she ensured that women in the industry stick together and to have, to help each other with the obstacles that the industry presents. And to be honest, are still out there to this day. You know, Kelsey, how has that sisterhood that Lynn and others established, how has that helped you in your career? It means everything. I mean, I think women are stronger together than they are apart. Um, I really am happy to see the trend moving towards women (laughs) helping other women uh, in the music business. Um, You know, um, I'm out here on the road right now. uh, Just I'm in Columbia, Missouri, looking at uh, a parking lot Mm. (laughs) in a hotel. And uh, I don't know, I feel like I'm only really just processing kind of like the impact that Loretta has left on us. Um, I cried like when I heard the news, actually, I never got to meet Loretta, but um, I just cried. I don't know, just thinking about everything that she's meant and, um, you know, and just, I mean, blazing the trail for me to be out here doing this too, you know, um, being on tour and hitting the road. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm a big believer that we should be, you know, proud to be women. And, uh, I do, I do think, uh, Loretta had a voice in that as well. Tell me, what do you remember most about Loretta Lynn? And I just think, I mean, her songwriting. Um, just, uh, you know, like Angelina was saying, I was just thinking about that when she was talking about Cole Miner's daughter, just a song like that. Um, even though it was so significant, I feel like it still was so universal in a way. I just feel like people from all across the world, like, we're so moved by her story, you know, uh, was so moved by her story. Um, I mean, I know a gal that literally like was from another country and like moved to Nashville, you know, because she saw a coal miner's daughter Mm. and, um, you know, and that's just like, I, I don't know. It's just like, even, even a story like that, I think can still be so universal, even if someone doesn't, um, you know, specifically relate to it. And I think that's just, um, because it's so vivid and, and unique and, and true, you know, to herself. Um, yeah. And, to, and to me, it's like what Loretta did was she was brave enough to tell it. Like she knew absolutely. that it mattered and yes. she jumped through all the hoops to be able to tell it. And she withstood the yeah, pushback it, at the time mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, totally. I think you, you gotta be brave, you know, yeah. I think you gotta be brave. And like she was and inspired, you know, us to do so as well. Well, Angelina, what about her strength that most inspired you? Well, goodness, there's so many things. Um, for instance, you know, just ha- being a being a, a grown woman now as opposed to when I was a kid, you know, I remember hearing all these songs, Rated X, The Pill. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as a woman who does advocate for women, especially women in country music, Loretta, she opened Pandora's box. You know, she broke down so many taboos for so many housewives who were sitting at home 
with their husbands cheating on them or, you know, overwhelmed by having all these babies crawling all over them. Well, Loretta was one of the first people, women, to sing about that stuff. And when when a woman is sitting at home with all that going on and she hears a song about herself on the radio, she's represented mm. in a way that she's never known before. And it um, it's life-changing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's songs that people literally leaned on. And at the same time they were leaning on him, uh, it was opening up a, you know, it was blazing a trail for people like me and Kelsey to continue um, to just expand that horizon. And continue on this day. You are. That is country music artist Angelina Presley of the Pistol Annie. She was joined by singer-songwriter Kelsey Walden. I want to thank you both for being with us today and talking about the life and legacy of Loretta Lynn. Thanks for having us. We're yeah, gonna, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. We're going to go out live today with a live recording of Loretta Lynn's Fist City. Enjoy. Miss Loretta Lynn. Hey, hey! Thanks to everyone who tuned in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harush and Rose Gilbert. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. Shout out to our intern, Tori Hoover. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at thisisnashville. Find us on Instagram. Instagram and let us know what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. You better detour around my town. Cause I grab-